So last week I talked about carbohydrates and said that they're one of the most controversial macronutrients in nutrition. Well, today I want to tackle seed oils, which I think actually holds the top spot for controversy now. Put the words seed oils into your internet browser and you'll see what I mean. On the one side are people that say seed oils are toxic and won't let a drop cross their lips. And they say their health is significantly improved by getting them out. In fact, they'll go out of their way to only dine at restaurants that don't use seed oils. And yes, there are online directories. For example, Sweet Greens recently announced that they took them out of their food entirely. The other side says there's nothing wrong at all with seed oils and that demonizing them is a right-wing conspiracy. Nope, I'm not kidding. I'm not sure how seed oils have been politicized. Well, I don't know. I guess everything is now. But for your sanity and mine, I'll keep the politics out of it. Let's just stick to the facts. So who's right? Let's take a deep dive. Welcome to the Perfect Metabolism Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Vance. I'm a nutritionist, yoga instructor, and author of the book, The Perfect Metabolism Plan. I've been focused on metabolism optimization for over a decade, and I'm here to tell you that contrary to popular opinion, it doesn't have to be all downhill after we hit 40. This podcast is general in nature, not medical advice, and for informational purposes only. Talk to your doctor if you have questions about how this information applies to you. On today's podcast, I want to examine the history of fats, or at least a little section of it. I'll explain what seed oils are, what some potential health concerns they might pose, which seed oils are actually healthy. I'll tell you what fats I like to use and a super cool new alternative to fish oils. And I'll share a trick I have for using fat to stop sugar cravings in their tracks. So I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I've a great time. Yes, I know. <laughs> I vividly remember when my mom started buying margarine. My sister and I were making cookies, chocolate chip cookies, as we liked to do back then, more to actually eat the dough than to bake the cookies, but that's a whole nother topic. And I remember one day I pulled the butter out of the fridge and opened it up and was like, what is up with the butter? And I asked my mom why it was all weird and orangey, and she replied, oh, that's margarine. It's better for you. If I had a sound effect machine here, I'd cue the laugh track, because we all know that if anything is truly toxic, it's margarine. They are basically, well, they're basically sticks of trans fats, which is the absolute worst kind of fat. There's mountains of evidence that trans fats are bad for our heart, promotes inflammation, and much more. In fact, in 2015, the FDA actually revoked the generally recognized as safe GRAS label for trans fats. And in 2020, they took it a step further and banned them from foods. That's not something the FDA does lightly. But realize that there still can legally be trans fats in foods in less than one gram amount. So even those small amounts can add up if we're eating a lot of foods with them in it. So I bring this up to let you know that one of the reasons I'm skeptical of nutrition trends is because, well, I don't, I've seen a lot of them come and go in my over 50 years on this planet. So let's just say, well, I have a healthy dose of skepticism, right? 
And margarine is the perfect example. If it's horrible for our healths and our hearts, why did our, our government tell us that it was heart healthy for decades? It's actually an interesting story. I'll give you the cliff note version. So as you probably know, heart disease is the number one cause of death in this country, and it's held that spot for almost a century now. But if we look back at the turn of the 1900s, heart disease was virtually unheard of, something like less than 1%. So it had this rather, I guess you could call it like a meteoric rise in the early 1900s. And in just a couple few decades, it went right up to the top, you know, one of the top causes of death. And people were, were kind of scared of it. They desperately wanted to know why this was happening. In comes this guy named Ansel Keys. He was a researcher, and he had this theory that cholesterol and saturated fats were to blame. He conducted some worldwide research, and then he went to the World Health Organization to present his hypothesis and his findings. He was ridiculed. His ego was crushed, and so he left with his tail basically between his legs. But he didn't give up. He went back to his data to re-examine it. And then he later published his, it's a famous study called the Seven Countries Study, which showed that a high intake of saturated fat and cholesterol was indeed correlated with heart disease. There were two flaws, however. One, his research was based on correlation, not causation. And basically what that does is it leaves open the possibility that some other factor could be to blame. And, well, perhaps worse, he was accused of cherry-picking those seven countries because he knew that they would validate his theory. There were other countries that invalidated it. But the interesting thing is this time his research was lauded, but he had his critics, and one namely Dr. John Yudkin, And Dr. Yudkin believed that there was other factors that were to blame for the skyrocketing of heart disease, namely sugar. But the thing that Dr. Keyes had going for him over Dr. Yudkin was that he was a very persuasive, slick marketer. And Dr. Yudkin was more of a kind of quiet, sciencey nerd. So despite the flaws in Keyes' research, he won over the American Heart Association, the NIH, the, and the USDA, and he even got President Eisenhower's doctor on board. At the time, Eisenhower had suffered a heart attack. And Ansel Keys even graced the cover, the cover of Time magazine. So Americans then were told to reduce their intake of saturated fats and cholesterol based on Ansel Keys research the seven country studies and the low fat era was born as I've said before I think one of the worst eras in nutrition now interestingly there were some other set there were some other studies that came after his um, and they were big studies good studies one was the Minnesota coronary study and another was a very very famous study called the Framingham heart study they both went to went looking for factors that contributed to heart disease and neither one found a correlation between saturated and saturated fats and cholesterol and heart disease 
But the interesting thing is because this had already kind of been accepted as almost like religious dogma as what can happen in nutrition science, the researchers were so puzzled. They, they couldn't explain why they thought they had made a mistake. So they chose not to publish their research. This actually happens quite a bit. Um, so the low fat era continued on for decades, despite the fact that it was kind of based on this flimsy science. So, you know, I, I think a, a few de- decades later, there are some interesting things that have happened. And, and I think the saddest part is that things have cropped up in, in our youth and our kids. Diseases that were once thought to be just, you know, things that affected people who were aging began to affect kids. Like, remember how type 2 diabetes used to be called adult onset diabetes? They had to rename it because it now was affecting kids. And there's also liver disease. Kids' livers, are some kids' livers at least, are starting to look like middle-aged men's, with 1 in 10 now having something called fatty liver disease. 4 out of 10 children who are obese have this problem. So, you know, we've, we've got other problems that haven't budged. Heart disease still sits in the number one spot for causes of death, and we've seen diabetes, obesity, and and also Alzheimer's disease spike high. I've talked about Alzheimer's disease in previous episodes and how a lot of people are starting to refer to some types of Alzheimer's disease as type 3 diabetes. So fast forward to 2002, a guy named Gary Taubes blew the lid off the low-fat craze with an article in the New York Times. It was really groundbreaking at the time. Uh, titled, What If It's All Been a Big Fat Lie? And he argued in, in this article that carbohydrates in our diet, not the fat, were the likely cause of obesity and heart disease. He was essentially defending the Atkins diet. Remember Atkins? Atkins was basically right in smack dab in the middle of the low-fat craze, you know, recommending a saturate, high-saturated fat, low-carb approach. And, you know, Atkins had, you know, some quite a bit of success. But both Atkins and Taubes were basically labeled heretics, and they were shellacked in the media with hit piece after hit piece. And, you know, there still is obviously controversy around this, but, you know, Taubes has largely been vindicated and now is considered to be a top influential authority in nutrition. So I I think his article, because it was in the New York Times, really started to get people questioning, you know, again, it it was dogma, nutritional dogma, the low-fat concept. Um, It started to turn the tide and wake people up to this low-fat con. But, you know, it didn't change overnight because nutritional dogma doesn't die easily. Um, I mean, when I became a nutritionist in 2011, People looked at me like I was nuts when I was trying to convince them that fats were not the enemy and, and, you know, trying to help people understand fats. That's why chapter two of my book, The Perfect Metabolism Plan, is all about fats. It's basically dedicated to it. And, you know, even today, organizations like the American Heart Association are still demonizing saturated fats. I basically call it nutrition confusion. It's actually, it's really hard to know what the truth is when there are persuasive arguments from both sides, right? So now let's move on and, and I want to dive into the seed oil conundrum. But, you know, before we get there, let's, let's kind of pull back um, and, and define fats in general. 
I'll try and, you know, get a little bit not too sciencey and give you like the three minute summary here. Um, so again, I explained last week that carbs are basically chains of sugar, right? Well, to put it very, very, very simply, fats are basically chains of fatty acid, right? And the way that they differ are their degree of saturation, the length of the chain, short, medium, or long, and their stability and basically the potential to lower or increase inflammation in the body. So let's talk about saturation first. We have saturated fats and unsaturated fats, and unsaturated are broken into mono and saturated poly. One critical difference between these different fats is that, you know, their stability. So let's start with the saturated fats. So animal fats like butter and lard are highly saturated, but, you know, about 40 to 60% saturated, which... I, found, I find interestingly closely matches human cells because human cells are about 50% saturated. So that's kind of an interesting to think about. Um, also, you know, there are some interesting compounds in like, for example, butter and ghee. They're high in a compound called conjugated linoleic acid or CLA, which is linked to fat burning and a reduction in body fat. You can even take CLA as a supplement. Um, but it's naturally occurring in, in butter. And if you recall my episode on the skinny starch, you might remember the gut healing compound butyrate. It's also found in butter. Now you'd have to eat a lot of butter to get enough butyrate, but, um, and I sometimes describe butyrate as smelling a little bit like, you know, rotten butter. And, and so, you know, I think that's where it gets some of that smell. But um, again, butyrate is very healing to the gut and immune boosting and all of that. Now, there are plant-based saturated fat. Coconut oil is almost 90% saturated. So again, these fats are stable. Um, they're less likely to be damaged or oxidized. Um, you can cook with them and, the, and it's not going to damage them as much as some of these other more delicate fats. The other unique thing about coconut oil is that it is, I talked about the medium, short, and long chain fatty acids. Coconut oil is very high in medium chain fatty acids or triglycerides. Um, the medium ones have some really unique abilities that it can be converted to energy very, very quickly. They don't like to be stored as fat. So they serve as a very good energy source. They also interestingly don't require bile for digestion like the other fats. So because coconut oil is high in medium chain fatty acids, it tends to boost the metabolism, provide rapid energy, um, the one caveat with coconut oil is in some individuals, if you eat a lot of it, it can raise cholesterol levels. Whether or not that's good or bad is a topic for another day because, um, you know, and actually we are going to talk about heart health. It's February, it's Heart Health Awareness Month, and I've got a really cool interview coming up this week. So definitely stay tuned for that. I'm sure we'll talk about cholesterol a little bit there. Um, but again, if you plan to incorporate coconut oil, I, re I, re I recommend doing it in conjunction with other healthy fats like avocado, olive, and grass-fed butter, you know, having a balance of various different fats. So let's look at now to the unsaturated fats. Unsaturated fats are basically, again, broken down into two categories. We have polyunsaturated and monounsaturated fats. Avocados and olive are two examples of 
fats that are high in the monounsaturated fats. And they're generally thought to be very heart healthy. This really is something that, again, is fairly, I think, true information. Avocado also is interestingly stable uh, cooking oil. It has one of the highest smoke points of all fats around 500 degrees. So if I'm roasting some veg- vegetables in like a 400 degree oven, I like to toss it in avocado oil. So it's thought to be stable for higher heat cooking. Olive oil is more delicate, has a lower smoke point, but it's interesting. There's some new studies that have come out that have shown that because of its high antioxidant content, it actually can protect olive oil at heats that are above its smoke smoking point. The One of the problems with olive oil is there's been some reports now that some olive oil that, you know, some of the bottles that say olive oil aren't actually olive oil. They're either completely different oils or they're cut with other cheaper oils. So, you know, when you're choosing olive oil, you want to choose a reputable brand. And one way to tell if it's actually olive oil is stick your olive oil, stick it in the fridge. And if it doesn't solidify, then it's probably either cut with a cheaper oil or just not even olive oil because olive oil will solidify when it's refrigerated. Whereas polyunsaturated fats will not solidify in the refrigerator. So let's look at the polyunsaturated fats. That's where the seed oils fall into that category. Again, polyunsaturated fats are not stable. Um, so, which means they're kind of delicate, they're prone to oxidation and can be damaged and go rancid. So when we think of polyunsaturated fats, I think about whether or not they could be damaged or promote inflammation or not. So we kind of also need to consider the omega content of them as well. In general, seed oils are high in the omega-6s, which generally can be thought of as more inflammatory, whereas the omega-3 fats found in fatty fish, chia seeds, flax seeds, algae, some nuts, and hemp, the omega-3 helps to lower inflammation. So I think when people are demonizing seed oils, what they're really talking about are the industrially processed seed oils which are often extracted chemically with some high heat and especially if they're stored in clear bottles, all of these different things can cause damage to these oils. The chemical extraction can damage them, the high heat applied, And then when they're not stored in dark colored bottles, they can be oxidized by the sunlight. So uh, therefore, if you buy cheap oils at the store, if they're processed in this way, they probably are damaged and can be promoting inflammation, systemic inflammation. And, And inflammation is not, you know, a lot of times we label, label inflammation as bad, but Inflammation is part of our healing process when it's acute and localized, but when we have systemic, chronic, ongoing inflammation throughout our body, that's when it's disease-promoting. I have a whole chapter in the Perfect Metabolism Plan about inflammation as well, because as Dr. Mark Hyman says, inflammation leads to every one of the major chronic diseases of aging. So again, he's talking about that chronic, systemic uncontrolled 
um, inflammation that's running rampant through our body, as opposed to, you know, if you think about inflammation, if I fell down and hit my elbow, there'd be some swelling, or if I cut myself, there'll be some um, white blood cells rushing to that area and inflammation. So that's when it's healing, but when it's chronic and uncontrolled, that's when it's harmful and disease promoting. Um, you know, the other way we're getting seed oils is in things like fried foods. And the problem with that is if you go have fried foods at a restaurant, I mean, we don't know how long they've been heating and reheating that oil over and over and over, frying foods in it. And the likelihood of it not being highly oxidized and inflammatory is is pretty low with, with fried foods and, and um, fast food restaurants and things like that. Another factor to consider with seed oils is that a lot of them are genetically modified and heavily treated with pesticides. I definitely want to talk about that in another episode because I do think it's really important to our health. But for example, soy is one of the most genetically modified foods. And soy oil is not probably something you're going to go buy in the grocery aisle where you buy the olive oils and but soy oil is going to be in a lot of salad dressings. Um, it's probably one of the first ingredient in a lot of mayonnaises. And a lot of restaurants use soy oil because it's a cheap industrial processed oil that they can get a lot of. Um, and it doesn't really have a lot of, you know, it doesn't affect the flavor of the food. Um, but again, soy is heavily treated with pesticides because it's one of the most genetically modified foods. Another type of genetically modified oil uh, is corn. About a huge percentage of the corn in this country is heavily um, genetically modified and heavily treated with pesticides. And the type of pesticides that um, they use on corn causes the the guts of the 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 pair the bugs to explode and so it's i'm wondering what it's doing to our guts right um, other ones are cottonseed and canola canola again another one of the top genetically modified foods so in addition to being fragile easily oxidized they're also genetically modified and treated with pesticides another trouble with seed oils is basically just the amount we're getting so if you've been listening to my podcast now, you've heard me say that really health is about homostasis or balance, right? And the problem with our standard American diet acronym is SAD because it is, it's not balanced. And this is especially true in regards to our intake of fats, poly, we, we, we get way too many of these industrial seed oils. So ideally, we want roughly a ratio of three to one of omega-6s to omega-3s. But the standard American diet is about 96% omega-6s or, or refined industrial seed oils. So just knowing if the majority of these are these damaged, cheap industrial oils hidden in our processed foods, used in our restaurants and fried foods and packaged stuff, that it's definitely going to be driving some inflammation in our body. So again, really, I think the biggest concerns with these industrial seed oils is that they have the potential to promote inflammation, which can drive diseases like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and dementia. 
so, you know, I use canola oil canola oil as an example. I mean, I, I thought it was healthy for years. I used canola oil and thought it was absolutely, I was doing the right thing, right? So if you have been using these oils and, and you thought you were doing the right thing, hey, don't beat yourself up about it. I did the same thing. I was right there. Um, but uh, there was a study that came out in the journal Scientific Reports. It was conducted um, at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University. And they found that the consumption of canola oil was associated with worsened memory, worsened learning ability, and weight gain in mice, which are bred to model Alzheimer's disease. So this study was one of the first to make this connection between canola oil and brain health and function. So, um, you know, I definitely encourage you to, I'm, I'm linking to the stuff that I'm talking about to, in my show notes. So definitely do your own research and, and read both sides of an argument. I think that's how we become informed consumers and, and we can decide for our own what we believe. You guys might listen to this podcast and go, ah, this is all bunk and just ignore what I say. And of course, you have the right to do that. So I'm going to provide these links in my show notes so you can, you know, dive into this. So again, my feeling is we, you know, the key is getting less inflammatory fats, more anti, you know, balancing it out, getting more anti-inflammatory fats um, and, and less of the inflammatory ones. Now, you know, again, the, the polyunsaturated fats, you've got pro-inflammatory omegas and then the anti-inflammatory omegas. And regarding the omegas, there's actually a new kid on the block. I'm kind of excited about it. This is the first new omega fatty acid discovered in almost a century. And again, I love stories. I think you probably are realizing now as you're listening to my podcast, so much of what I like to do is, is give history and stories. And um, so the story behind the, dis- the discovery of this new Omega is actually really fascinating. They, they, have, um, they have a TED talk about it. I'll link below to that as well. But the, pr- the product is called Fatty 15, and it was discovered by studying dolphins off the Florida and California coasts. And what they, they noticed was that the Florida dolphins were much healthier than the California ones. And they basically just determined it was due to this molecule called C15 and that the Florida dolphins were getting more of. And in fact, when they gave this C15 molecule to the California dolphins, they, the California dolphins achieved a 72% increase in the stability of their cellular, their cells. And so, you know, the cool thing about fatty 15, unlike the more instable omega-3s, is that they are highly stable. So, you know, this is a really cool, exciting new product. It's now not just for dolphins, it's available for humans. And I actually have a link to it below um, and you can get 20% 20 off using that link. So one more point on the seed oils is, you know, there are actually some healthy seed oils. That's why I kind of want to disbunk this idea that all seed oils are bad for you. Um, It's just these damaged 
you know, industrial seed oils. And I'll give you a, a few examples. So black seed oil, if you haven't heard of it, um, it's kind of like this nutritional superstar. It's also known, the, the name is Nigella sativa. And black seed oil is actually not new. It's been used medicinally for, I don't know, like a thousand years. It contains some, a compound called thymoquinone, thymoquinone, which has anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties, and it may support weight loss, improve digestive and skin conditions, help with wound healing, um, the immune system, and potentially even has cancer prevention properties. So black seed oil, it's one of those things you just need like a spoonful of spoonful of it a day. Um, it can use internally as well as topically. Another one of my favorite seeds, um, fatty seeds are flax and chia seeds. They're both high in omega-3 fatty acid. Now you can use flax oil, but I actually prefer to use the flax seed um, and the chia seed because they are extremely healthy sources of fiber. They're some of the most nutritious fiber sources out there. Um, so in addition to providing anti-inflammatory omega-3s, they support healthy digestion. One of the other things omega-3s do is help to thin the blood so it improves um, blood flow and blood pressure. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting about chia seeds that makes them one of absolutely the most unique foods on the planet is they're what's called hydrophilic, which means they soak up a lot of water, like 10 times their own weight in water. And so what it does is it creates this gel type of substance. So one of the reasons why I don't recommend eating a lot of chia seeds dry is it's going to do that in your body and that's not as good. So you want to hydrate them before you eat them. So give them a few minutes to allow it to soak up liquid. And so if you're putting them in your smoothie, let them soak there for a little bit. You can also make chia pudding, um, which is in my skinny starch uh, recipe book. But chia seeds are really interesting in that they can help boost hydration. They serve as a long lasting source of energy um, and both chia seeds and flax seeds have those anti-inflammatory benefits as well from their high omega-3 content. Another really interesting seed are hemp seeds. I, I usually call them hemp, hemp hearts. Um, and they're very nutrient-dense and antioxidant-rich. They're anti-inflammatory and contain a good dose of protein and you know minerals and vitamins. The way I like to use hemp seeds is I like to sprinkle them on top of salads, but probably my favorite way of using them is I use them in my homemade salad dressing recipes. And, you know, if I'm blending up salad dressings, if I add a, teaspoon, a tablespoon or two of hemp seeds, hemp hearts, it makes it thick and creamy. It adds some omega-3 content and protein, and I've got a bunch of delicious salad dressing recipes on my website, saravance.com. So go check them out. So again, going back to this statement, the broad statement that seed oils are toxin, toxic, I, I think is just way too much of a sweeping generalization. To me, we should be more specific and point the finger at these industrial processed seed oils. And even with those, I'm, I'm cautious, but I'm perhaps not as strict as the purists that avoid all seed oils at all costs. So let me explain what I do when, with regards to fats. So I 
control what I buy and what I cook with. And I only buy and use high quality olive, avocado oil, butter or ghee. Ghee is basically clarified butter, so it removes the milk solid. So it has a really, really high temperature. It won't, you know, get, you know, it won't brown as easily or burn as easily. Uh, So I think of ghee as more of an oil version of butter. Um, And then I also use coconut oil. I use it mostly for like baking and raw desserts. Um, If I'm buying packaged foods, which, you know, I do, I'm pretty selective about what I buy and I read labels. So I strictly avoid products with canola oil, soy oil, corn, cottonseed, and vegetable oils. So for example, if I'm looking for a, if I don't want to make my own salad dressing and I'm looking for a salad dressing, I'm looking for, you know, I'm making sure it doesn't have corn or soy, which most of them do. Um, you know, package things like chips, I try and buy either a coconut oil or avocado oil or avocado oil or olive oil chip. There's lots of those on the market. And I mentioned in previous episodes, I avoid the ones that have all the flavorings and stuff. Those are just going to absolutely hijack your taste buds and make you crave more and eat more. Um, so I occasionally will buy something made with sunflower or safflower oil or uh, grapeseed oil. Um, so if it's a, you know, I'm looking for short ingredient lists, reputable brands, often if I can find organic. And a lot of times those oils will say cold pressed. That's another really important distinction with these seed oils. If you are going to buy you know, any kind of polyunsaturated oil, we can even think like nut oils or flax oils, even ground flaxseed, you want to buy cold pressed, you know, cold milled ground flax, because again, you don't want that. Those are sensitive to heat as well. Um, And then I, again, try and lower, you know, try and keep the balance of my omega-3s to omega-6, you know, as balanced as possible and making sure I'm getting some kind of omega-3 source, whether it's chia seeds, hemp hearts, flax, nuts, algae, fatty fish. Um, or again, this new fatty 15, I'm super excited to see what, you know, how that um, impacts my diet and lifestyle. So to wrap this up, let me just kind of summarize what we went over today. One, it's important to recognize that we were basically given disastrous nutrition advice for decades. And it was based on kind of flimsy science. And that was accepted as nutritional dogma. And it has not been good for our health. Number two, when it comes to fat, it's important to choose wisely, avoid or strictly limit the amount of cheap inflammatory fats. Um, Number three, again, my favorite fats are avocado, olive, grass-fed butter and ghee, fatty fish, chia seeds, hemp and flax. And although I've not gotten into it, a lot of people swear by tallow. And again, it's another stable animal fat. Um... I, again, avoid soy, corn, canola, and vegetable oils and limit my intake of sunflower, safflower, and grapeseed. And I'm excited about this new option, Fatty 15. Um, I definitely encourage you to go check it out, read up on it, um, check out that TED Talk. I'm definitely trying it out. I've got another family member trying it out. And, you know, I'm excited to report back in a future podcast. And let me know if you try it and what you notice. Um And then finally, when I read a headline demonizing some aspect of nutrition, I take a deep breath and remind myself that a lot of these headlines are going for clicks and the shock factor and that science, you know, is only as good as 
the hypothesis. It can be corrupted by conflicts of interest. That's a really, really big one. Um, there have been studies that were buried because they didn't like the results of them, right? Um, it can be corrupted by personal biases, like Ansel Keys kind of had this idea in his head of what he wanted his conclusion to be. And I do think that it might have affected, you know, the outcome. And science is always evolving. You know, as we can see, if we look back over the last several decades, things have changed, right? So I always, you know, once I see a headline, I always dig a little deeper, do my own research before coming to a conclusion and, and be prepared to adjust my position on something when I'm presented with in information that changes it. I have changed a lot of the things I've learned over the years. I've unlearned, I, had, I remember sitting in my nutrition school, unlearning everything I had learned as a kid about fats and just being blown away. I was sitting there thinking to myself, what? This is insane. I need to tell everybody I know. <laughs> so thankfully, I've told a lot of people that I know about it. Um, I'm going to end with kind of a interesting quote from Marsha Engel, who was the first woman to serve as the editor-in-chief of the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine. She said, it is simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that is published or to rely on the judgment of trusted physicians or authoritative medical guidelines. I take no pleasure in this conclusion, which I reach slowly and reluctantly over my two decades as an editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. Pretty amazing and very kind of almost disturbing quote, right? Well, I hope I piqued your curiosity about questioning nutritional dogmas. And, you know, perhaps it, you walk away from this episode with a healthy dose of skepticism and curiosity. So please make sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I've got some really exciting stuff coming up for you. And this is your Perfect Metabolism Podcast.